Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. I'm Dan Carson, pastor of Family Ministries here at Calvary. And if you're looking for a church to connect with, a people to learn about God's Word and to serve together, we'd love for you to check out Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you need to call us, you can do that at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study with a message from Hebrews chapter 11. Let's listen together. Well, we're continuing our journey through our walk through the book of Hebrews chapter 11. This is known by many as the faith chapter or God's hall of fame chapter in his word. Some 16 names of people that uh, the Lord tells us are examples of faith. We know that faith is essential to the Christian life. It is the only way to be saved. It is the only way to have a relationship with the Lord. We often say it like this, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And to add to that, it is through scripture alone that you can learn the truth of the gospel. Now, as we've talked about faith, and those of you that have been here and you've heard me on many occasions before say, but I want to reemphasize it this morning, that faith in the Bible, when the Bible talks about what faith is all about, you have to come to the understanding that there are three aspects or three components of faith. If first of all, it begins in the head. Faith begins in the mind. Romans chapter 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And when it talks about hearing, it means by understanding. You're going to see uh, some folks baptized today. Now, we don't baptize infants. We believe that uh, baptism is a choice of obedience to the Lord. A person needs to come to an age that they understand the gospel and respond to it and obey the Lord by following him uh, in baptism. So faith begins in the head, but it doesn't end there. If it stops there, if all you have is a mental belief that yes, there was a historical Jesus, yes, he may have been the son of God, and it just stops with that, understand that will not get you into heaven because faith and belief here has to lead somewhere else. And we say that it begins in the head, but then it moves to the heart. And when we say the heart, we're talking about the seat of your will and your emotions, where the decisions in life are made. And so when we believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death on our behalf, that we are sinful and in desperate need of a Savior, that we could never be good enough or religious enough to earn our way to heaven, that the only way to be with God for eternity 
is through faith. When we believe that gospel message, it leads us to surrender our lives to him. The Bible says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. So a mental understanding here leads to a surrender here in our will. And that always results in a changed life. When you surrender your life to God, everything and anything that any person will ever give to God is going to be changed. It's going to be made better. It's going to be made more perfect. And so when you give your life to God, surrender your life to God, it results in a changed life. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 has to say. And so to sum it all up, if you are what you've always been, you're not a Christian. You're not a true Christian. You may have been born into, quote, a Christian home. You may have been catechized somewhere along the way. You may have been confirmed somewhere along the way. You may have been in church all your life. But if you are what you have always been, you're not a Christian because the work of faith or the decision of faith that God gives to us and works in our lives means there's a difference like daylight and dark in our lives. And we can see faith in people's lives. Now, we've had a working definition as we've started through this chapter for several weeks now. And we say that faith is this. It is trust which produces obedience. Does your trust in the Lord produce obedience in your life? It should. That's where the change is that God works in us by the power of the Word and the power of His Spirit. Now here's our key truth, and we'll get to our text. The true church of Christ, the true church of God, whatever name you want to give to it, whatever denominational title you want to identify, the true church of Christ is comprised only of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Well, last week we talked about Abraham. And he was a very significant uh, uh, person in the Old Testament, and his shadow is even cast over the New Testament scriptures. But today we get to Moses, and he too is a larger-than-life character in scripture. You can read of his birth in Exodus chapter 2. You have to go all the way to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 34, to read of his death. And so virtually four out of the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, of what's called the Pentateuch, four out of the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, revolve around Moses and God's work in his life. Now it would take us weeks to explore all the things we could learn and we could draw from in the life of Moses, but we will summarize his story to what Hebrews chapter 11 gives us, beginning in verse 23. Follow along as I read. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we've been talking about what faith looks like in a person's life. And we've been using the examples, working through them, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. You see, as the Bible mentions these names, it shows us an example of what a changed life looks like, what a life of faith looks like. If you remember, Abel showed us that faith worships. That was our first example. Enoch demonstrated the truth that faith walks with God. Noah also walked with God, but he was an example that faith works. Last week we studied the example of Abraham, and we learned that faith waits. His life was a life lived in the providence of God, that God was meeting his needs. Even when he did not know where God was leading him, even when he did not know how God was going to accomplish what he promised, even if he didn't know when God was going to come through and do what he said he would do, or even when he didn't know why, God required him to make some of the decisions he made. Well, the story of Moses is a story of choices. I think we can all identify with that, can we not? Our lives are full of choices. Moses is an example of hard choices, difficult choices, life-changing choices. You and I make choices every single day. Someone has said that our lives are the sum total of our choices. Some of you sitting where you are sitting right now, you have made choices in the past that you deeply regret today. You wish you had done something different. Some of you are here today, and you see how your life was changed for the better because of choices you made. Our lives will reflect not only the choices that we make, but hear me now, our lives also reflect the choices of another. And another is with a capital A. We'll talk about him as we work our way through the points of the message. I could have called this message, Moses, Jesus, and you. For those are the three points of what I want to say in the time I have left today. Number one, Moses. Our subject, the paragraph we read from Hebrews chapter 11 about Moses. I think whether you have grown up in church or not, probably everybody here knows at least something about the life of Moses. 
you'll remember that he was adopted into a palace and into a position of great influence. He was actually born into poverty and slavery. He was born into a time when the king, Pharaoh, had made an edict that all Hebrew children were to be thrown into the Nile and fed to the crocodiles. Why? Because he was afraid of how many Hebrews, how they were multiplying in the land of Egypt, that someday they may be more powerful than we Egyptians. So he made a proclamation that all children, all babies should be fed to the crocodiles. But Moses' parents by faith, decided not to obey that edict. He was born into poverty and slavery, but due to God's providence and his parents' faith, he was placed into the very home of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, some will say that Moses might have even been considered a prince of Egypt that perhaps he would be in line for the throne having been adopted into the family of Pharaoh. Certainly Disney or DreamWorks or whoever made that movie. I don't know, Shannon, you could probably clarify that for us. The prince of Egypt, certainly somebody thought that he was, but we don't know if he was or not. What we do know is that Moses grew up privileged. He grew up powerful. He grew up full of potential. What an amazing story. Here is someone who is destined to be crocodile bait or at best to live a life of slavery and bondage, but he's growing up in the household of Pharaoh. He's growing up with, with unbelievable privilege. As a grandson to Pharaoh, he was educated by the best teachers of the day. He was trained powerfully in military matters. We will learn that God used that later on in what God had called him to. He was at the top of the mountain in almost every single way. Certainly he had come a long way from that basket boat made by parents of poverty. Now he lives the first 40 years of his life absolutely just touched with privilege and blessed with everything, power, money, potential. But if you go back to our text in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll notice that Moses made some fateful decisions. And his life is marked by these life choices. Look again at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but if you do, you might under, underline the word refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was his first choice. Verse 25, choosing, that's his second choice, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Verse 27, By faith he left, that's his third choice, he left Egypt 
not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept, underline the words, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now notice those decisions. He refused to be identified with royalty. Although he was considered royal, although he might have been destined for the throne of the most powerful country in the world at that time, he chose instead to identify with slavery. He refused to be identified with royalty. He chose to identify with slavery, with abuse, with mistreatment. He actually chose a life of suffering over a life of blessing and privilege. And then he left that land of plenty. He left that place where there was a throne and there was a palace. He left it for a land of pilgrimage, a desert, a barren wasteland where he would ultimately spend 80 years of his life. And he kept the Passover. This was the very beginning of this great celebration that was the future pointing towards the sacrifice of Christ where the blood was sprinkled on the lintel of the doorpost of every home and on, on the side symbolizing the shape of a cross and those who live there under that blood on that fateful night understand their firstborn was spared while others were not. He refused. He chose. He left. He kept. Why would someone do that? Would you? Why would someone do that? I think the answer is in verse 26. For he considered, that means counted, that's what the word means. He counted the reproach, that means abuse, the abuse of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Verse 27 says, He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now what in the world does that mean? And how in the world would he have considered the reproach of Christ to greater wealth? He was living 1,300 years before Jesus ever came. Moses did the math. And you know what? Not a single one of us will ever experience a life blessed by God until we, too, are willing to do the math. What do you mean he did the math? He counted the suffering that would come by identifying with Christ and Christ's cause. He considered, he counted that greater wealth than everything Egypt could ever offer him. He looked to an eternal reward. He didn't live for an earthly gain. He counted the abuse for Christ's sake, greater wealth than the transient temporary treasures of Egypt, of the world. Now, beloved, 
every one of us live and work in order to gain what this world has to offer. A bigger house, a newer car, more money in the bank, a greater position, a corner office, whatever it is in your context, Every one of us are living for something more. And we are giving our time, our energy, our lives to achieve that something more. But understand, everything you can see, feel, taste, touch, or hear in this life, every single thing that this life has that can be known by the senses is just a vapor. It's transient. It's temporary. In fact, guess what? Jesus, uh, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, said, your life is a vapor. It's not even like smoke that can hang around out there for a while. It's what comes off the top of the tea kettle. Now you see it. Now you don't. That's what your life is. And that's what my life is. And you know what Moses decided? He decided he wasn't going to live for what this life had to offer. He's going to live for what eternity had to offer, where the true riches are. Moses, he made hard choices because he had done the math and he determined what he could not see was what was really eternal and lasting and real. Number two, Jesus. One of Moses' final messages, one of his final speeches. By the way, I don't know if you remember this. Moses lived to be 120 years old. And you can mark his life by three 40-year time periods. The first 40 years, he grew up in Egypt learning how to be a somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the wilderness, on the backside of the desert, learning how to become a nobody. He spent the last 40 years of his life demonstrating that God can use anybody. All right? 40, 40, and 40. The last 40 leading the children of Israel as a deliverer. as a de He delivered them out of bondage and to the promised land. Well, he was there on Mount Pisgah, overlooking the promised land. He was not allowed to enter it, although he had been living for that and leading the people all those years. He was allowed to see it, and he's giving his parting speeches to the people of Israel. Now listen to this prophecy that he gives in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen closely. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. There's coming another prophet, a prophet like me, that will come from you, the people of Israel. And when he shows up, you must listen to him. This is a messianic prophecy. He is prophesying of the Messiah that would come one day. And notice the four qualities of that verse. He will be raised up by God, number one. He will come from among the Israelites, number two. 
He will be like Moses, number three. He will be worthy of being heard and obeyed, number four. A prophet who fulfills these words, that prophet is Jesus Christ. That's who he was prophesying. Understand that Moses was a type of Christ. Do you understand that idea, that concept? In the Old Testament, there are several stories and there are several people and there are several things that actually point to Christ many years before Christ comes. It's kind of like when, when a new car body is designed and the designers work it out. They first draw it out and then they work in clay and they shape it and they give it all of its curves and all of its lines and that is a prototype of the real deal. Moses was a type of Christ. He was a prototype of the real Messiah to come. Just as Moses was going to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, Jesus is going to lead his people, true Christ followers, out of the bondage of sin, not to a promised land in this life, but to a promised land, a land of heaven that he's preparing for us even right now. So Moses was the prototype of Jesus. Moses was a deliverer. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. Now on the banks of the Jordan River, 1,300 plus years after Moses, just a few miles away on the mountaintop, prophesied of that Messiah and said, watch for him, there were a group of Jews who were watching John the Baptist baptize and they asked the question, are you that prophet? John chapter 1. Are you that prophet? John didn't have to say what prophet. He knew exactly whom they were referring to. They were asking about the prophet that 1,300 years ago Moses had said would come. And they were saying to John, are you that prophet? John pointed directly to them, pointedly said, No, I am not that prophet, but he is standing among you. Even that day, in the crowd that was asking John that question, Jesus stood there incognito. He had sneaked up on them. I love that. And if you go on in John chapter 1, the very next day, when it came time for that Messiah to be revealed, that prophet that was promised 1,300 years before, John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He baptizes Jesus, saying to him, I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. Jesus said to him, John, I need to fulfill all the law's demands. I'm here to live as that sacrifice. And as he is baptized, you see the Trinity being expressed. There is the Son of God coming up out of the water. There is a dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit coming down to land upon him. I don't think that's going to happen visibly here today. <laughs> but it's already happened because the Spirit has already entered the hearts of these who will be baptized. And the voice of the Lord 
speaks from heaven, the Father. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Jesus, the greater creator God of the universe, was the promised prophet who came to redeem mankind. Now listen, he too made hard choices, even as Moses. Moses chose to walk away from, to leave the throne and the palaces of Egypt, to be the person God wanted him to be. Understand, Jesus, in coming to this earth and taking upon the form of a servant, taking on the form of a human body, a sinless God in bodily form, incarnate is what the word is, to the enfleshment of Jesus Christ. Understand, he left heaven. He left a greater throne. He left a greater palace than Moses. Moses was the prototype, but Jesus was the real deal. And he left heaven, and in some way known only to God, here the creator of the universe, the one with whom his own hands shaped Adam out of the dust of the earth and then took a rib out of Adam and made a woman. This same creator God became a part of his creation. He invaded time and space and he did not come as a powerful uh, general. He did not come as a conquering king. He came as an embryo in the womb of a young girl, a peasant girl living in Nazareth and he was born in Bethlehem and grew up a normal life. And the Bible says this in John chapter 6, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Paul describes this to the Philippians. Listen closely to these words. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. You believers at Philippi have this mind, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He left the example. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing that he had to grasp onto. In other words, God the Father didn't have to undo his fingers as he held on to uh, some post in the temple in heaven and pry his hands loose and boot him out of heaven to get him to come down to earth. He didn't feel like what he had there was something he had to hold on to. He was willing and ready to leave that to come down here and experience this. He emptied himself. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Did that mean he ceased to be God, that he emptied himself of his perfections, of his attributes, of his glory, of all of who he was? No, he did not become less God. In some way that you can't understand, that I can't understand, he was fully God and fully man. What he emptied himself of was all of the privilege 
that he had as the son to the father in heaven. Just like Moses had exemplified by leaving what he had for a life of slavery. Jesus did the same only in a much greater in a much greater way. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's no more painful way to go. There's no more awful way to go. There is no more shameful way to go than to be stripped naked, to be beaten with a whip till your flesh hung like ribbons, to have your beard ripped out of your face, and then to be nailed to a cross for all the world to see. There's nothing more shameful. There's nothing more lowly. There's nothing more humbling than that. But that was what he was willing to subject himself for, for your sake. You see, every one of you, you deserved for that to happen to you. I deserved for that to happen to me. But Jesus came and took my place. And he took your place. He bore the shame of the cross for you. Therefore, because he was willing to do that, I love this part of Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Before I start winding this up, let me give you one more verse. It's the gospel in one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The life of faith is the life of hard choices. Moses made them. Jesus made them. My friends, Jesus left the portals of glory in heaven to take on the form of a servant, to live a sinless life, to die brutal, torturous death, to purchase salvation for you and me. He paid our sin debt, a debt we could never pay with our good name or our good works. He was our divine substitute on the cross. Through his grace, we receive what we could never deserve. And through his mercy, we did not receive what we did deserve, and that's punishment. Moses, Jesus, point number three, you. How about you? Oh, thou person of choices. We all have to make choices. We all have to make decisions like Moses, what's important to us. We all have to do the math 
though we often try to just not think about it. I think there are three fundamental questions, and when it comes to life, they don't get any more basic than this. The Calvary family, you've heard me ask these questions before. You'll hear me again. And the three questions you have to answer is this. Number one, what do you want in life? What do you want? What do you want? You make choices about that every single day. More money, a happier marriage, more beautiful kids. Oh, that's not possible. Nobody can be any more beautiful than your kids unless it is your grandkids. And they are almost divine. What do you want? And what do you really want? Question number two, what are you willing to pay for it? Because that's the decision you make also. You want a more comfortable life? You work your fingers to the bone. That's what you're willing to pay to have more money, thinking that's going to make you happier. You're going to pay. Everybody pays. You pay for what you want. What are you giving your energy, your time, your focus, your attention, your love, your affections, your money? What are you you giving yourself for and to to try to get today? Everybody does. What do you want? You see, Moses came to the place he decided that he wanted God's reward more than he wanted what Egypt had to offer. He wanted God's approval. Again, he did the math. An eternity, that which can never be taken away, came to mean more to him than everything in this life that he would eventually have to let go of. What might get ripped from his hands or certainly what he would have to release when he died. What do you want? What are you willing to pay for it? And the third question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Whatever it is you're giving your life for right now, is it worth it? Once you achieve that place, that pinnacle, whatever it is, however you measure it, once you achieve it, once you get it, once you have it, will it be worth it? One of the most profound statements I've ever heard made was made by a businessman who had come to know Christ earlier in life but gave in to the appeal of what this world had to offer. And I mean, he set out to earn success in life. And he said, I worked my fingers to the bone. I gave everything I had. I ultimately, it cost me my family. It cost me my children. It cost me my self-respect. But finally, I climbed to the top of that corporate ladder. And when I got there, I discovered it was leaning against the wrong building. Some of you are trying to make it to the top. But when you get there, you're going to find you're not in the place you thought you would be. 
and you will not have what you thought you would have. Jesus spoke to this, and it's the last passage I'll share with you. You're familiar with it. I think we'll have it on the screen. In fact, let's put it up there if it is. Would you read this aloud with me? I think we need to hear our own voices speaking the words of Jesus. Let's read this together in unison. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. Notice the underlying words. What will it profit a man if he gains everything, the whole world, at the cost of his own soul? What will a man give in return for his soul? The choices you are making right now, today, yesterday, tomorrow, the choices you are making are either choices that will guarantee that you will spend an eternity with Christ where the real reward is, or you are making decisions that forfeit your soul to a devil's hell. Now that's hard. I know that's hard. But eternity is either heaven or hell, folks. It's nothing in between. What choices are you making? What choices are you making for the sake of your children? Do your choices point them to Christ? Or does it point them to the world? What do you want most for your kids? Some kind of earthly fame or success? Or a home in heaven? Choices. Life is full of them. Every day. Many are small, even insignificant. Others are large, even life-changing. But some are tricky. Some are deceitful. Some decisions you and I make appear to be large, but don't really count for much when all is said and done. And then there are some that appear small, insignificant, something you can put off till some other time but they will count for everything in light of eternity. What about Christ? What think ye of him? What about eternity? Where do you plan to spend it? What about Christ's church? She is his bride, his precious bride. Are you a part of that blessed people? Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the example of Moses, a man who made hard choices because he wanted to live for your honor and for your glory. Father, most of all, we thank you for Jesus who left us a path that he was too was willing to leave heaven and come to this land of slavery and suffering on our behalf. Father, help us to count the cost. Help us 
to desire. We want your glory more than anything else. I pray for that person here today that does not know you, that they will commit their life to you today. I pray for the person who does know you, that they will decide to follow you more closely. Be honored and glorified in our lives and in our choices, I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas or looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.